You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode featuring a Navy SEAL and Pat Tillman scholar, just a few notes as usual. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with the show. Of course, keep in contact with us. Send us guest suggestions. We take them all right there. Don't forget about our uh, promotion with Amazon on our website, hazardground.com. You go there first and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You get redirected to the Amazon website. Do all your normal shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations that have been featured here on the show. does the same thing from your smartphone. So if you go to hazardground.com on your smartphone, it'll redirect you right to the Amazon app. All credit card information is saved. Really convenient, really easy. Make sure you do it. Uh, go to our YouTube page and like and subscribe the show uh, on YouTube at Hazard Ground as well. Don't forget to download the Kill Cliff app uh, and Kill Cliff TV. You can get all of our video episodes right there on the Kill Cliff app, Kill Cliff TV as well. And, of course, Kill Cliff continues to be great friend and partner of the show. Make sure you go to KillCliff.com to get all of your clean energy drinks, including their CBD products, as I'm holding up the Killer Cliff Sickle with CBD in it. Just a fantastic line of products. A big fan. I use them all. I use the pre-workout, the Ignite, the post-workout, the Recover. Uh, these are just clean energy drinks. Navy SEAL Foundation, huge proceeds benefit uh, Navy SEAL Foundation. Over a million dollars already donated to the Navy SEAL Foundation from Kill Cliff. So continue to support them as well at KillCliff.com. Don't forget to leave us our reviews on Apple. Help grow the show. Trying to crack those that top 100 Apple podcast. We can do it with your help. A short review. Give us five stars. Doesn't have to be anything lengthy. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate it. And that'll help us grow this hazard ground community. All right, on to this week's guest. Again, a uh, man who went to the Naval Academy, after the Naval Academy, went into the SEAL team, spent nine total years of service at multiple deployments overseas, left the military, and went on to go get his MBA at the Wharton School of Business. That means he's smart. But he also became a Tillman Scholar, a Pat Tillman Military Scholar, which is a, an amazing, amazing organization, obviously named after Pat Tillman. We've had several Tillman Scholars on the show. After spending a couple of years at Google, went on to start his own company called Made For. Um, which he is now the CEO of, and he is Patrick Dossett joining us on the Hazard Ground. Pat, welcome, man, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Um, I've been called a lot of things. I don't know that I've ever been called smart, but uh, I'll take it from you. So. Yeah, well, Thanks. again, uh, <laughs> anytime you, you go to a school that has a name in front of the school for business, that means somebody smart went there and made the school. So uh, by by transference, you automatically are smart. You see how that works? <laughs> All right. I like that. <laughs> Uh, again, congratulations on being a Tillman Scholar. It's not easy. Uh, it is one of the one of the more notable, you know, things I think that military veterans who, who get named to be a Tillman Scholar. We've had several of them on. Just an incredible foundation. Obviously, Pat was a, a, an incredible human being, but nonetheless, uh, I feel like you know, for for Tillman Scholars, it's always sort of that special feather in your cap, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's an amazing honor, and I think um, obviously the example that Pat set um, and continuing to see that legacy lived out through the scholars and the work that Marie does, and and, and the whole foundation, just people that want to continue to serve 
you know, whether or not they're still in uniform or outside of uniform, um, it's a it's a pretty powerful community to be a part of, and uh, I'm honored uh, I'm honored to, to to be a part of it. And certainly, the uh, SEAL community as well, very tight knit, very powerful. Um, obviously, it's a long road to get there. Uh, but you started in Annapolis at the Naval Academy. How and why? I did. You know, actually, I started in about seventh grade. I, I was one of the um, probably many kids who, who read uh, Dick Marcinko's books. I read a book called Rogue Warrior in, in, mm-hmm. in seventh grade and something about that book. I don't know, just the way that he described the community, the, the, the nature of the job, just he made it sound um, impossible, but also um, that the sacrifices and uh, and the, the cost associated with the work was was worth it. And it was a really special group to be a part of. And for whatever reason, that planted a seed inside me that I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And I started working towards that and, and was fortunate enough to to get a slot to the academy. I, I didn't get it on the first go. I, I think I got a um, I got a, a letter saying we can't accept you to the academy, but you can come into the prep school and give it a shot. And so I was all fired up. And about two days before getting ready to head off to the prep school, I got a, a call from the academy and they said, actually, uh, someone just dropped out. We have a spot open up if you want to go. And I said, yeah, and uh, the rest is history. So spent four years at the academy. You know, I I was one of these people that I went there with the only reason I wanted to go to the Naval Academy because when I was going through the list of colleges, I saw there was one called Navy and I knew I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, but I really didn't know much about it. Uh, when I showed up, everything for me was about what do I need to do to become a SEAL or to get a spot? And I just assumed if I get into the school and I want to be a SEAL, that just happens automatically. But I soon found out that they only have uh, you know 16 slots a year, at least when I was there to go. A lot of people competing for it. Um, and it wasn't guaranteed. And if you didn't get a slot into the SEAL teams, then you were probably going to ride a ship. And for me, that was just not acceptable. I get seasick. Uh, the thought of being on ships for long periods of time was not exciting to me. And so I worked really hard. I, I found out that if you if you boxed uh, and you could do well in boxing, that every year a few boxers would get slots to SEALs. And that that became my focus. And so I just I worked real hard in the ring. Um, I'm not super athletic, but I have a hard head and hard fist, and that got me, uh, you know, that got me what I needed to to ultimately get a slot to, to training. So, all right, well, there's, there's a lot going on here. So, <laughs> uh, you said seven years old. When, when a kid that age tells his parents they want to be a Navy SEAL, what is the reaction? Did they just sort of blow you off and think it was a phase that it was? Hey, I want to be a fireman. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a Navy SEAL. Yeah, you know, I think so. Yeah, seventh grade. I think it was thirteen. Seventh grade, and sorry. I think the the you know the initial reaction is like, oh, that's nice. You know, you have something that you're excited about, and and hey, you're reading a book, so that's really great. Like we want you to read, and um, but I I think over time they started to realize that I, I was really serious about this, and and they could see um, how serious I was, and so when the Naval Academy thing came about, they're like, well, this is great. We don't have to pay for college. Yeah. Um, this is awesome. And then, you know, every year as I got a little bit closer and closer towards the goal, it became a little more real. And so when I was a senior, um, they have service assignment day, everyone, you know, gets called in and you list, you list your preferences and, and, and you find out on this one particular day, you know, what you, what you're getting assigned to, if you're going to be a Marine or, a, you know, a SWO or going to be a SEAL and, find out I was going to be a SEAL and um, called my parents right after and said, hey, I, you know, I got a slot to SEAL training. I'm super excited. And they were like, that's oh, amazing. And then we hung up. And then 15 seconds later, my mom called me back just crying. She said, I knew you wanted to do this, but I never thought it was actually going to happen. And now it's happening and I'm not happy about it. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, well, because one thing happened your senior year of college that we'll get to uh, in a minute, but I, I, I did want to 
just stay along the lines of the academy. And you, you mentioned that you had to go to the prep school and they called you and had a slot. Did, were you unnerved by the fact that, you know, it was almost, I don't want to say like second choice, but like, hey, man, you weren't good enough to get it the first time. Oh, somebody dropped out. Now we'll take you in kind of deal. No, you know what? My, my mindset was, a, I don't know if it was warped or, or what, but I was actually, when they, when they told me, you know, you're going to go to NAPS and this is, this is going to be your path, I just, I figured out um, how to make the, you know, what the story was in my mind. It was like, all right, well, this is, now I'm really going to crush the academy. I'm going to spend a year. I'm going to train. I'm going to get everything figured out. And then when I show up, I'll just be that much more prepared. And I'd kind of, you know, wrap my mind around that. And so when they called and said, hey, we have a slot open, I actually said, uh, I need to talk to my parents. Can I call you back in like an hour or so? Because I'm not sure. Because I had already in my mind determined, hey, I'm going to do this nap thing, and that's the best path. But um, ultimately, my parents said, you're an idiot. Like, yeah, take the slot right in. And so I did. And, uh, you know, again, never been called smart, but, um, you know, that smart it, it takes practice, Pat. It takes practice. You know, you, no, well, you, you I try to fall. I try to fall forward. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I try to fail up. It just hasn't worked for me yet. Um, <laughs> I just keep failing in the wrong direction. So, senior year of uh, the academy, nine eleven happens. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Nine so eleven. I, I remember. I was walking to. Um, I was just coming out of a psychology class. I was walking into an, uh, an ocean engineering class and. Uh, all the midshipmen were like ants kind of spread across this campus. And, you know, a lot of people walking by and I heard someone mentioned, Hey, like an airplane struck a building, something, something along those lines, but just in passing. And then they had just installed these TVs outside of, um, outside of my class. And as I was walking into class, I saw, you know, obviously, um, one of the towers, uh, had been struck and I said, Oh, that, that's kind of strange. And, but we just looking at it, 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 it didn't look. You know, who knows? I I didn't know what I didn't know what to make of it, but went into class and I remember the class was taught by um, a Korean exchange officer, Commander Boo. um, And Commander Boo was trying to get us all to, you know, focus on the engineering lab that was at hand. And and it just kept going back out and watching the TV and then saw the second plane hit. And right then, obviously, well, this is different. Something's wrong. And he kept trying to pull us into the class. and We were just like stuck in front of the TV. And a, a short while later, um, they pushed all of the civilian staff off the off the uh, off the academy grounds. Marines threw up barricades uh, at the various gates. Um, they started rotating the midshipmen around um, to to eat so we wouldn't all be in one place at the same time and staggering us. And I think we were in that posture for maybe four or five days. Classes were canceled. And at the same time, you know, there's a lot of rumor going around like, well, the academy is a target or they found this or this, you know, all of these things. You just weren't quite sure what to make of it. But the one thing you knew was that um, that we were going to be in a fight that as soon as we graduated, no longer was it this kind of nebulous. So I wonder what work I'm going to be doing. I want, you know, you, you figure going into, into the SEAL teams, you're going to have some form of work to do no matter what's going on. But um, after 9-11, it just became every moment that you had leading up to training and graduation, whatnot, just became that much more serious. And it mattered. And you said, all right, well, every day I need to train because soon I'm going to be in a fight and I need to be ready for it. So yeah, um, it's it must be so hard to process as a kid. Uh, and, and again, a lot of us, including myself, you know, we all signed up in a pre-9-11 world where, at least for me, like combat was like the furthest thing from my mind. Like it just mm-hmm. wasn't in my conscience. It was – I used ROTC as a means to an end. Like I'm like, hey, I'm going to go pay for school. I'll go do the Army thing and I'll figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. You know, I'll be 24, 26 years old, whatever it is when I decide to get out. 
uh, and I still got my whole life ahead of me. I, I never really thought that combat was going to be part of my, um, my my life at any point. Now, you wanting to be a SEAL, I think you, you already had a predetermined uh, feeling that combat was something that you wanted to do. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I mean, you want... I wanted to work hard and train hard and be tested. Um, and ultimately I think the, the highest form of test is to lead men in combat, um, men and women in combat. And so that is, that is absolutely what I signed up for and what I, what I had hoped to achieve. But I think, look, everyone comes into the military for a lot of different reasons, whether it's for, you know, want an adventure or change of pace, or you want, you know, to pay for college. But I think if you're in for any length of time, this, this idea of, of service and sacrifice just becomes part of the fabric of who you are. And if you're in, in a time of combat deployments and, and, and real world work and people are dying, then that just gets imprinted on you that much more. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, it just became, I think nine 11 created, um, a level of intentionality and focus and just, um, greater, gravitas towards, you know, a weight towards everything that you did because you knew yeah. at some point lives were going to be on the line. You know, I'll tell you, it, it, I never really said this before, but you just said it in a way that, that sort of jarred my brain. But I think intent was the perfect word for for people like me. And I think many of us who signed up in a pre-9-11 world who thought the military was going to be X and it turned out to be Y. Um, y came with purpose, right? It mm-hmm. came with intention. All of a sudden, your service had a greater intention than what you intended for it. Um, and, and again, there were many people who said they were going to do the military and signed up pre-9-11 and made a 20-year career and then some, and that was always their intention. But I, I would tell you that a lot of those people, again, um, you know, didn't sign up with combat in the front of their mind saying, I want to be in the military because I want to be in combat, because there was none for a good 25-year period. There was none. Yeah. I mean, yeah. sure, Desert Storm, but like, you know, you farted and Desert Storm was over. Like, it, it went that quick. So, you know, uh, for the fortunate few that got to go there, uh, that was kind of what you got to do. But beyond that, it just wasn't anything that, that was ever in my my thought process. So I, I think intent was a was a really valuable word. But I do want to ask you, um, when your mother called you back and said, no, I don't want you to do it, uh, what was the rest of that conversation like? Because she knew what was in your future immediately. Yeah, I, you know, it probably wasn't covered on that call, but over time, what I explained to her was like, look, if I couldn't be in a better position, if, if you're going to be in the military, you want to be around the best uh, and you want to be um, you want to have high level of training. You want to, you know, you you want to be an asset, um, uh, a, a valuable asset, because valuable assets um, not only can they have great effects, but they're also they. um it, it, there, there is just another level of, I don't know, diligence to how you're, how you're deployed. So even though you're, you're going into the breach or you're going, you know, into hot zones, you're going in with the best people, with the best training, with the best equipment. And you, and, and you know this as well, but you stack the deck in your favor. It's not like we're just going out there to, you know, react to contact. We're actually going out there and we're going to um, stack the deck so that we win. And that's, that's, that's what you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I, and I always, you know, I remember being out in, you know, Iraq and watching those logistics convoys go down route Irish and just thinking, Oh my God, there's these young kids that are just lined up driving these trucks, long convoys. And to me, those are some of the most, you know, brave, uh, brave individuals because I just, I don't know. It just, for me, that just seems like you mean that was that was target. me for three or four days a week for uh, a year plus straight. 
Yeah. And, and, and we wouldn't have been able to do anything had you not been doing that. Uh, and so there, you know, oftentimes we, we, we hold up small segments of the military is like, Hey, these are the, the tip of the spear. These are this, but at the end of the day, it's, it is an organization and it requires everyone. Yep. And if one part of that isn't showing up for their job, the whole thing fumbles and the whole thing breaks down very quickly. I always say so, that uh, it's your piece of the pie. Some people's piece of the pie is bigger. Some people's no. piece of the pie uh, is more important, but you don't get the whole pie without every piece of the pie. And the whole yeah, pie is what fine. is needed. So my piece of the pie was that for uh, that was part of my piece of the pie. But, you know, that was my piece of the pie for the better part of a year plus. And, um, you know, it, 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 I was I was happy to do it. Like it's one of those things. And I, I remember writing this in my journal that that was the most in my life I ever enjoyed being like a role player, if you will. You know, like I didn't need to be elevated. I didn't need to be in a spotlight or in a high level unit or, you know, going after high value targets or anything like that and, and kicking down doors all the time. Although some of that stuff I got to do, um, I enjoyed my role, right? Because I, I knew my role was critical to the success of others. And that was enough for me. I think that, I think that's everything. I think that that's spot on. If you can, if you can directly tie your efforts towards the larger mission and to the, the importance of what's going on, then, then I think that is, that is the most important thing. And it's interesting, you know, on my, on my first deployment, to Iraq, we the, the the SEAL teams had taken on this role of PSD for for the top uh, five, four or five, you know, individuals in the in the Iraqi government. So prime minister and president and um, uh, a couple of the other positions. And for for SEALs, you have this this very offensive mindset. You, you know, I want to go do DAs or I want to do, you know, whatever that whatever the mission set is. But it's something that you are that it has an element of offensive and it's very offensive in nature. And we get tasked with this, this personal security uh, mission set. And man, that couldn't be at least in your mindset, you're thinking like, well, now I'm a catcher's mitt for whatever wants to come my way. And like, that doesn't feel really good. And, and, and so you have to, you have to do the the analysis and the thinking on it and say like, all right, well, why does this matter? Why is this important? Well, if the, you know, the, the PMs or the presidents keep getting knocked off, then um, none of this works, right? They're not going to be able to set up their own government. They're not going to be able to, you know, a lot of the work that the, the, the collective military is doing is going to be futile because they can't, they can't get in place what they need to get in place. And so you play these games to, to figure out how can I say that this work is important or this works matters. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you execute on the mission that's presented to you, right? So we don't get to choose our mission sets, but the mission sets that come down. You want to crush them. You want to do them. You know, you want to do them perfectly. You want to do a good job, and then you want to move off and, and do other ones. So let's get to uh, buds. You know, because uh, right after graduation, do you immediately go there, or is there a little bit of lag in time, or how does that happen? Yeah, so sixteen guys out of the uh, out of my academy class all went off to SEAL training. And they staggered us up into three groups. So uh, first group went off in that that summer right after graduation. And then second group went off uh, maybe five months later. And then so staggered a few the few through a few different BUDS classes. My uh, my group went out. We were a, a winter BUDS class. And so there were five of us or six of us that all went out together and um, checked in together, got a house down in uh down at the, the southern end of Coronado and the Coronado Ks lived together and and went through uh, went through buds together and it was 
it was awesome. It was the best. So, I mean, it, it's so it's so easy to yeah, so easy to look back now and say like, oh, that was you know, obviously some of the the real painful stuff that that fades in your in your memory, but you just remember, hey, we got paid to work out on the beach and train, and um, it was awesome. Now, were you the guy going in buds that read up as much as you could and tried to find out what you were in store for as much as possible, or were you the guy who just said, I'll just figure it out as I as I go through it? Yeah, I think you can't help because being in the academy, you every year going through physical assessments, you're doing, you know, interviews and you're constantly getting racked and stacked against your peers. You spend a summer, one of the the summer, your junior year, you go out and you spend a few weeks going through, they called it mini buds at the time, but you know, get a little taste of buds and and then go in bed with the team for a couple of weeks. And so I think everyone that was coming out of the Academy was, was very, very well prepared. Um, and, uh, had a sense of what was in store. Now you never know everything. And um, at some point you say, okay, I know enough, like, let's just go do this and let's let the cards fall where they may. But um, yeah. So, so I had, I had a good sense of what was in store, but you know, you never know it until you, I think, I think sometimes knowledge can be uh, can serve as a detriment. If you feel like, all right, I just need to game this thing perfectly. And then like, I'll, I'll get through it. Like that's absolutely the wrong mentality to bring into buds because Every, there's not, uh, it's not a matter of if, but when they, they figure out what your, you know, what your weak spot is and they just keep pressing on it until you either callous up or, or you quit. Uh, buds for you, more of a physical challenge or more of a mental challenge? Ooh, it's hard to separate those out. I think they're, they're so closely interlinked. I think, you know, buds uses the, the physical as a, as a proxy to test the mental. And so, um, it is, a. Uh, it is an ebb and flow. I was fortunate that, you know, it didn't have any major injuries as I was going through buds. You know, some of that is luck. Some of that is um, a level of preparation. But, um, you know, everyone at, at some point as they're going through training just has to suck it up and, and deal. And uh, I was no exception there. But I think when you're doing that, part of it is, you know, relying on your your physical, um, the physical training and, and foundation that you've laid. But a big, bigger part of it, a much larger part of it is, you know, the mental game that you have to play uh, to make it. Hardest part for you, buds? Oh God, um, I I really don't like being cold and wet. Um, and so, like, I mean, if I'm being honest, like, I, I just don't like being cold and wet. And so, I think that was not that it's hard because you just, I mean, you just deal. It just sucks. Uh, but that was probably my least favorite. Right behind that, or maybe maybe equal with that, is just running with a boat on my head. Um, I'm a bigger guy and like never able to fully get like a good stride. And, um, it always seemed there was an instructor around anytime that, that my boat crew was running with our boat and they were throwing sand in there or hopping up inside the boat and jumping up and up and down. And, um, I never, never really enjoyed that, but, you know, again, it's, when I look back on it now, there, there were probably so many times where I had to like dig deep and I had to move the finish line very close in to say like, Hey, I know I can go another five yards or 20 yards. Um, forget about trying to make it through the day or make it to the next meal. It's literally like, how far can my eyes see? Like, all right, I think I can make it to that point. And then once I get there, I'll reassess. And so you're constantly playing that game and um, that you just do what you got to do to make it. Yeah. Guy who gets seasick, doesn't like cold and wet, wanted to be a seal. <laughs> just making sure I got the score accurate before we, uh, before we continue here, so I'm not, I'm not a very smart man. No, I told yeah, you. You, know, again, uh, <laughs> you, you put one over on the Wharton School of Business, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> no, but you, you finish, you finish, uh, buds, uh, and obviously you got to go through, uh, you know, the next phase onto the teams and everything else. So, where are we, sort of month, year, time wise, 
Uh, and, and what are you hearing about, you know, where you're going and, uh, how quickly you're going to get to a team? Yeah. So this is, this is, would have been, um, early 2003 graduate from buds. And then, um, there's a, there's a whole phase of additional follow on training that you do before you can show to a team. So we had to go out to Fort Benning and do static line jump school, which was, uh, incredibly challenging for, um, for some probably some different reasons, not challenging like buds, but just challenging in a different uh, different way. Um, and then you go through um, uh, free fall school, you go through SQT, which is our uh, SEAL qualification training. So you're doing more advanced demolition and tactics and weapons and diving and and all of that. So um, getting a basic foundational skill set so that you're not a liability when you show up to your team. And then I think the final thing you do is go up to, at least when I was going through, we'd go up to Kodiak through winter warfare training, spend a few weeks up there. Uh, and that was really the last phase of training before checking into a team. So I finished all that, checked into SEAL Team 7, and um, they were just returning back from deployment. So I knew I was going to get a full workup, 18-month uh, workup before we were, we were going to deploy. And um, at the time, you don't really know where you're going to deploy during that workup cycle. They kind of keep their, their cards close. One of it is part of it is, you know, how are the teams being deployed out uh, across the various various battle spaces. And then two within the team, you know, which platoons are going to go where. So you have some platoons that maybe go to the Philippines or some platoons that go down, you know, down in Southcom or some that go to the middle East. And so it's always a little bit of a, uh, an unknown until you get further along through training and they, they assess the various platoons and then, you know, make decisions uh, from there. So. When you first get to your team now, again, you're on the officer side, so you're obviously taking charge of this whole team. Um, what's your mentality going in? You know, I, I, we, we spoke to – I've spoken to dozens of enlisted, you know, uh, Green Berets and enlisted SEALs uh, who, you know, have to go through this sort of rite of passage still. You get hazed a little bit when you get there. You're the FNG when you're on the team and everything <laughs> else. But those guys also aren't the OIC of the team. So you walk into this role. Um, what is your sort of mindset in sort of endearing yourself to a new group of, of SEALs that you just met and uh, leadership philosophy and things of that nature? Yeah. So, um, as a new SEAL officer, you, you'll you'll start as an AOIC and a so assistant officer in charge of a mm-hmm. platoon. Um, sometimes you'll get paired up with uh, you'll have a couple of AOICs uh, under under an OIC. That was the case for me. So I had another AOIC that had already done uh, a deployment with a boat detachment, and um, uh, so had a little bit of experience in the teams, and then. Um, and then the, and the rest of the platoon, I'd say my philosophy and approach was small mouth, big ears. So, um, don't talk a lot, learn as much as possible, really try to get into leverage that, that first time at the team as an opportunity to learn boats and motors and communications and what do the snipers do and really learn all of the various skill sets that you're, that the people on the team, um, have and the equipment that they leverage so that again, you're not going to be a liability, but that you can be an asset. Not that the officer is ever going to, you know, be the one, you know, uh, not going to be behind the glass or not going to be, um, you know, filling the various, you know, lead, tactical leadership roles, but I'm always going to be pulled back a little bit, but it's a good, it's a good opportunity to understand what they do so that um, you understand how best to serve them when you do find yourself in a position in a leadership position. And so um, that was, that was, that was my approach. Just learn as much as possible, put out and, uh, and work hard. And I think, look, there's, there's always an element of new guy and, and hazing and it doesn't matter if it's officers or enlisted side of on the enlisted side. But what I found is that the platoons that function best really function like professional 
a professional team. It was like, Hey, do your job. Here are the expectations, exceed the expectations. And like, and then we'll move on and we'll grow closer over time and you'll get more and more responsibility as things goes. Those, those platoons that really were into hazing and, you know, uh, you know, uh, made, you know, were the, you had maybe some, some, some E5s or E6s that wanted to like stick it to the new guys. I always found the cohesiveness within those, within those platoons to be not quite as effective as, as some of the other more professionally run ones. And so. When do you get to your first deployment? Uh, we, oh, let's see. What was it? And maybe oh four beginning of oh five uh, first deployment. So we deployed to the Philippines, it was kind of a mixed bag. We we spent half the time in uh, in PACOM and then half the time in Iraq. So I think we were in uh, worked in Thailand and the Philippines for uh, about three months, and then shifted over to Iraq. Uh, and we were there for I believe four or five months. When um, you when you hear that you're going to the Philippines, you know again you kind of signed up for this whole deal, wanting to be tested and lead people in combat. Are you sort of bothered by the fact that why the hell are we going to the Philippines? There's nothing going on over there. There's a war in Afghanistan, a war in Iraq, and we're sitting here in, on a bunch of islands in the South Pacific. Yeah, you want to be in the fight, no question. And, and guys are guys are mixing it up and and um, and having real impacts on the battle space, and that's where you want to be. Um, that's why you do all the work. But it was even you know the Philippines. I think for, was actually a step up because I started in Thailand, and we were there as a part of a, a joint training exercise. We were training some of the the Thai. Um, frogmen and a lot of the guys in the platoon especially the some of the more senior guys were saying like this is great like thailand's amazing it's awesome you're gonna have a good experience and then and then you know we'll eventually get to iraq but i remember sitting in thailand and like i remember at one point i think we had like a weekend off or something and i was getting a a massage on the beach and i just felt like man i need to go do something really hard because i'm about to be in iraq and like i feel like i'm just getting like i'm a little baby veal just getting massaged for you know the slaughter and so when the philippine thing came up uh, i was actually supposed to stay in thailand for that for that first half when the philippine requirement came up they were um they were working with uh, the phil the, the phil special operations units down there and we we had some there were some interesting things happening there and so it was it was at least not training. It was real world. And it was nice to move over there and just to see a different vantage point and get that experience. And I liked it. Um, it was great. And then to leave from, go from there to Iraq and, you know, ultimately where we, where we wanted to be was, you know, that was, that was the best. Yeah. Massage on the beach to a different kind of massage <laughs> and a different kind of beach. When you get to Iraq, uh, I always tell people Iraq's tons of beach, just no ocean. So that's you're it. Good. Uh, where do you end what? up in, where do you end up in Iraq? Well, so, you know, it, it's funny. I was, when I left the Philippines, I think we ended up flying commercial through Dubai ah. into Kuwait and then caught a, uh, caught a rotator from Kuwait. And so you want to talk about a, a strange juxtaposition is like landing. I had never been to the Middle East before landing in Dubai, getting off. And there's like kiosks inside the airport where they're selling gold bars. And there's like these, you know, I mean, just Dubai the, the nicest. Oh, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, you I, have the kind of, if, I listen, I tell everybody, if you got the kind of scratch to go vacation in Dubai, do it. You will not be disappointed. It is amazing. For 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 me, it was, it was just it was surreal. I was like, oh wow, okay, this is this is different. And we never left the airport. Um, and then a short while later, we flew off. And then you know, maybe thirty six hours later, we we're stepping off the airplane into uh, into Baghdad, and just you couldn't couldn't have polar opposite worlds. And so seeing that compress in such a short period of time, you know, Thailand, the Philippines, and 
you know, being down in um, in a few of the islands around there and then in Manila and then very quickly Dubai and then Baghdad. I was just like, oh my God, my head is just spinning. So um, it was a, it was an interesting entry into that, into that country, but spent, uh, spent the first bit of time there in, in Baghdad working uh, in and around RPC. And then uh, where I was. Our, oh yeah. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, I was at RPC. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then, so we were, we were tasked with taking care of the, uh, the prime minister and um, basically push out various parts of Iraq wherever he was going and, um, and, you know, running the, the personal security for him uh, for a few months and then finished that up and transitioned off uh, to working up in Talifar uh, and doing some uh, counter sniper operations up there, uh, trying to support the conventional uh, conventional units that were up there. Um, and then came back down to, to, back down to Baghdad to do more traditional DA stuff in and around, um, in and around the city. I will say, and there are very few people who know RPC, um, but from a massage on the beach to the pool that you guys had, which is the better of the pools than the one that we had, <laughs> uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the toughest of, of actual living situation. So I never made it to the pool in RPC. I will say that. Oh, I you never made it there? The, I, see, I, yeah. got, I actually got onto the seal compound once and got to the pools. Nice. It was very nice, but the pool That's at RPC funny. was, was, was just as good, but you know, yours was a little more secluded and, you know, a nice little deck there hanging out. So it was, a, <laughs> it was good, but, um, we're, yeah. we're good nesters. You yeah, give us well, a spot and we'll figure out how to, uh, I, how to make I, it. I have nothing but respect for the special operations community. The, uh, the regular army will find the worst, most dumpiest place to go and go, Oh, this is fantastic. And special operations folks will go, well, why would we go there? And we have something over here. That's just, easier <laughs> and better. uh, because the regular army goes, yeah, we have to embrace the suck. And, and, uh, you know, you've been there anyway. So, um, after that first deployment, um, you know, and you get a chance to do the direct action stuff and you get a chance to kind of lead folks in combat. What are you thinking is next for you at that point in time? Yeah. Um, so this is interesting about halfway through that deployment, the XO of the team sent a, a note out to all the junior officers and I had already been picked up to do another AOIC at SEAL team seven. And so that for a junior officer is the best because it's, it's more operational time. You know, you're going to need another deployment before you do your OIC tour, which is another deployment. And um, the, the, the game for junior officers is like, how long can you stay operational and deploying um, in that, in that tactical leadership role? And so I was already set to do another AOIC at, um, at SEAL team seven when this X, the XO sent an email saying, Hey, they're looking for people to do, they're looking for a volunteer to go do uh, an OIC job on the East Coast at a SEAL delivery vehicle team. Um, so these are our mini submarine teams. The SDD Team 2 at the time was based uh, at Little Creek, Virginia. And um, when that when that note went out, I said, wow, if, if, if I could get if I could go do that, it it it'll be a little bit of a different vantage point, different operational experience, different, you know, um, a whole different ball game. But what it allows me to do is to get that OIC tour knocked out um, so that I can screen and, and maybe go do some other, you know, tactical leadership positions within the community that I was interested in and excited about. And so I volunteered uh, and then I got picked up for it. And then um, a couple months later, as soon as we got back from, from that deployment, I told my ex, I was like, you know what? I actually really prefer just to stay here in San Diego. I, I love it here and I'm going to miss it. And this team's great and I want to stay. But at that point, it was too late. So a few months later, I found myself uh, packing up and moving down to Pensacola. Um, sorry, Panama City Beach to to go through SDV training uh, and then uh, to my team a short while later. 
Uh, you seem to always end up at least in good spots. You know, Pensacola is not the worst place to be from Coronado to Pensacola. I assume that there are, uh, you could have been in Roanoke, Virginia for crying out loud. Um, but as you go forward in this process, are you starting to feel the sense of validation that you wanted from being a SEAL? No. Why? Um, I think there's always, there are always parts of the community or people that are, are doing more work um, and are closer to the fight and more intensified and maybe having more consequence or more effects on the battle space. And so that was always as a, as a young uh, seal, that was always the game. It's like, I want to be tested and I want to, I want to do, I want to do stuff that matters and, and, and I want to be in the mix. And so I didn't feel like that was scratched on that first deployment. Uh, I felt like we got to see a few things and did a few operations and, um, and certainly, you know, it was not without its, you know, not without its danger, um, but it didn't, it didn't scratch the edge. No question. So is this next job as an SVT uh, going to give you, or does it give you the, the itch scratch that you needed? Yeah. So at the time, you know, the SDV guys, because there weren't um, a lot of national level missions coming down for, for the SDV teams. Um, they were getting to augment and deploy going over to Afghanistan and uh, the West coast teams weren't really getting into Afghanistan at the time. And so I viewed this as an opportunity. Well, you know, I'll go do this. I'll go learn a new skill set. I'll get a different, you know, perspective and vantage point, but more than likely this is going to put me in Afghanistan and um, doing work there. And that seemed to be interesting and exciting to me. I didn't want to find myself in a position, you know, a year and a half later being back in Iraq doing PSD. Uh, I just, it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And so, um, so yeah. Does, I, does I it work out? Do you end up in Afghanistan? No, no, it did not work out <laughs> as planned. Um, I actually does. took a, I, yeah, it never does. Uh, yeah, sometimes it seems the harder you work or the you know, the, the more you run on the on the hamster wheel, the, the faster you, you you don't go to where you want. But I, um, you know, I, I started to do an NOIC, uh, took over as a platoon and started working. And then we got about five months into the workup and another officer showed up to the team, had some hardship on the on the West coast, they moved him over to our team and he had previous STV experience and he was senior to me. So they put him in the platoon and he took over as an OIC. And, um, and then, um, and then they had another platoon they wanted me to take over. So I got pulled out of that one. And so I had about, I had about six months time before this, this new platoon was going to start. Uh, but it ended up being a really awesome opportunity. I got to, to go do, um, uh, some special activities, uh, work in and around the, the Horn of Africa. Um, and at the time I, you know, I went over to, I, I was working in and around Kenya and Somalia and doing some, some different things there again, saw the battle space from a completely different vantage point, different side of the, you know, global war on terror, um, outside of the, the traditional combat theaters. And it was fascinating. It's something that I wasn't aware existed or that was happening, but it was, it was really good to, to see that and to be a part of it. And yeah, I was grateful for that experience. Um, so it was a nice way to, it, it, it was almost a, 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 the perfect way to, um, uh, to kill time, I guess, before starting that next OIC role. But, um, yeah. So the next OIC role you get, is that, uh, end up in another combat deployment for you? It does not. We, <laughs> um, we did our full workup, all of our training, everything, you know, um, 
And the, the cool thing about the SCB teams is that you do the, the traditional workup that, that the, the normal SEALs do, um, but you do a lot of special um, specialized work on sniper reconnaissance, um, some a little bit more of sensitive operations training, and then obviously a ton of diving with the SCBs. And so great experience, great workup. That that platoon that I was with, um, some of the just the best people in the world. I mean, I, I guess everyone would say that about most of their platoons that they've been in, but uh, I wouldn't have traded, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. The downside of it was is as we were finishing our workup, um, the team got disbanded. So they actually shut down STV team two and they said, you know, we're we're doing some realignment of forces. We're gonna consolidate STV operations into in Hawaii and just have STV team one. Um and Everyone, you know, we're not going to deploy you all as platoons. We're just going to scattershot your guys across, you know, various uh, um, operational areas, and and that was it. And so uh, I was kind of like the last person standing in a in a game of uh, musical chairs, and I got sent to Balad to be the the Siege of Soda Night Jock Director for about seven months. And it when was this? Was cr- What's that? What time frame was this? This would have been in 2000, let's see, 2008, I want to say. All right. Yeah, I mean, I was- 2007, 2008. Between Baghdad, I made convoys between Baghdad and Balad in 05 and 06, so I didn't know if Mm -hmm. I might have uh, been a ship passing in the night with you, but uh, Balad wasn't bad either. It wasn't terrible. No, I mean, look, I mean, I I worked 12 hours in the jock, and then I'd have 12 hours off, and Mm -hmm. um, it was one of these things that- Again, I try to figure out like what's the best. How how am I going to get the most out of this experience? And so, uh, when I went over, it was the holidays. Um, so it was around Christmas time, or maybe even Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I, you know, the deal. Everyone sends all their junk food and cookies and candy, it's just everywhere. And so I was like, all right. When I land here and I, I started seeing, I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to go the exact opposite. All I'm going to eat is raw vegetables clean meats. And I'm just going to train as hard as I possibly can during my off hours. And so I think it was, was doing like two days or three days and just eating a ton of like good food. And I think I left, I came out of that deployment, uh, like, I don't know, 4%, 5% body fat. I mean, I'd never yeah. been, I was just a machine. That um, was my second deployment. I was doing three days. Non- I was at, just had a pure boarding. Yeah, was there for the close out in Iraq in 2011. And there was literally no kinetic operations next to none. So we yeah. all just went there to leave. Like I literally told my my whole unit, I'm like, guys, just understand here. We're going here to leave. Like we're, we're the last <laughs> rotation. We're going here to leave. And I was like, really? Yeah, 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 that makes sense. We are going. So it's all three days was common just at a pure boredom. Yeah, yeah. You kill time. And hopefully yeah. you kill time in productive ways. I and mean, you can right. play Call of Duty or you can train or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is. But um, so, you know, it was a uh, it was not my favorite deployment. Met some great met some great people and, you know, life in the, in the jock is pretty, uh, pretty mundane, not a whole lot of excitement there. Um, but it was, you know, made some, made some great contacts in the, in the army and just, just saw how different things worked and how the, the joint, um, really the joint team worked to, you know, effectively support all the operators deployed across the country. So that was, that was great. But, um, again, that's me trying to put a silver lining on it. I just wanted to be in combat and I wasn't. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, reading through your profile, you kind of get a shaft job again. You have to go be an aide to camp after this, right? Well, it's, I'll I'll do you one better. So the the one thing that kept me going on that deployment was I'd been picked up to screen 
uh, and, and go through an assessment for, um, for another tactical, uh, leadership, you know, role on a, on a, a combat tactical leadership role at a, at a different team. And that was what had always been my focus, what I was excited about. And I said, all right, well, I'm going to go do this, this night jock director thing for seven months. So I'll, you know, get the most out of it that I can. And when I come back, at least I know that I'm going to do this screening and, and go through that. And so came back, went through a, a selection and assessment and I was, um, I think I was two weeks into the assessment when um, I got pulled out of training on a Friday and the um, director of training said, you know, I don't know how to tell you this, but this has never happened before. But the Admiral of WARCOM, uh, the, the SEAL leader of the community, has decided that he wants an officer going through selection, a junior officer going through selection to go be an aide to camp um, down in down in Fort Bragg. Um, and because you're the junior person, you're, you're junior by, I think a year, junior person, in this class, you know, it's fallen to you. You're going to be the one that's going to go do this aid to camp position. So I had been, I went to SDV team. I went to the SDV team because I wanted to go into this selection. Uh, you know, I got this, this deal to Balad and, and the whole thing that kept me going was like, well, I know I'm at least going to get through this selection and, and or go to that. And, and that's going to, that's going to be the thing for me. So I get pulled out. Uh, the next day I find myself down in uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina at, at JSOC. I'm one of one interviewing for a position uh, aid to camp and I meet with a general uh, a phenomenal leader, a gentleman named uh, uh, General Joe Votel, and I meet with him and and we have our meeting. And at the end, he's like, "Well, is there anything else you want to tell me?" I said, "Well, I'll be honest. Like, this is the last thing that I want to do. I really don't want this job. <laughs> but if if you if you pick me up, I, and I walked him through like my path and what I was trying to do. I said, "But if you if you know if you select me as this one of one interviewing for this position, I'll do a great job. And the only thing that I ask is that you bring me along to everything. So keep me in all the meetings. And I really want to use this as an opportunity to to just learn and, and not carry your bags, but actually learn what's going on. And he was gracious and, uh, and did that and, and did it, did that in spades. And it ended up being a, another phenomenal learning opportunity, albeit not the combat uh, leadership roles that I was looking for, but just a phenomenal opportunity to see the entire span of JSOC, what all the units were doing. We had Admiral McCraven at the time was, was leading JSOC and, um, he would typically plant his flag inside Afghanistan, um, and then uh, General Votel would cover down on all the other uh, theaters or anywhere else where we were doing operations. And so we were flying nonstop. We were gone probably 95% of the time, flying to these various you know places where we had uh, personnel deployed and meeting with them and uh, meeting with senior leaders. And so it was it was a great experience. But um, yeah. Okay, so I mean, I'm just wondering. You're making the best out of every situation, but clearly this isn't what you thought you were going to be when you became a SEAL. Like yeah. in the back of your mind, are you having private conversation with yourself or even, you know, conversation with friends like, man, I didn't, this isn't what I thought it was going to be at all. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was like, I know you keep your mouth shut, right? And you do what's expected yeah. of you like that. That's, that's the professionalism that the job requires, but that doesn't mean you're not allowed to have an opinion. That doesn't mean you're not allowed to have human emotions and be like, this sucks. Um, it's not what I thought it was at all. I mean, ask yeah. anybody who's been divorced. Yeah, that's not what I thought it was going to be at all. That's why you're divorced. Like, you know, so uh, I'm just wondering I, where your mindset is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's no question. I mean, that's that that was there. And but I tried to to scope those moments where they were they were really intense, like, you know, WTF, like what's going on here? Um, and 
and I would sit in that space for a little bit. And then, and then I would just kind of shift my orientation. All right. What is next? What can I do? Like recognizing that, you know, crying over spilled milk or, or ruminating on, you know, what could have been or what should be just wasn't going to serve me well. I was still in the, in the teams and in the community. And I was still front side focused on, Hey, I'm going to get back into this, you know, back to ultimately where I want to be. And there was still a path uh, to that. And I knew that guys were still doing work and, um, and I was just trying to make sure that I was, you know, learning as much as I could and getting as most as, as much as I could from the experience so that when I eventually got to where I wanted to be, I was going to be an asset again and not a liability. So that's, but I will say, you know, it's funny. We, we got down to, I got down to Fort Bragg and um, I was, I was a little bit, uh, I was in a weird headspace and I was saying like, all right, you know, I'm so sick of training, but I need to do something. And, and um, I said, all right, you know, my, my new thing here is like, I'm going to do, I'm going to find some new physical thing to train in. And um, I said, all right, well, what's the thing that I hate more than anything else? And p- maybe part of this was like, I just needed to, to suffer to some degree, but what's the one thing I hate more than anything else. And the thing that came up for me was like, Oh yeah, bear crawling. Like I next to being cold and wet, maybe bear crawling is the thing that I hate more than anything else. And so I decided that I was going to start um, just working on my bear crawl and my thing. I was like, what's well, a good distance. Well, miles is a good distance. So Anytime we were back in Fort Bragg, I was out of the track there and I was trying to get my mild bear crawl time down to under 30 minutes. Uh, I was never able to do it. I think like 35 minutes was you know the closest I got. But, um, you know, again, I was just trying to like be in this headspace. Like, how can I make the best of this situation? How can I do something um, a little bit different? And, you know, anyways, I'm trying to envision right now bear crawling around a quarter mile track four times. <laughs> you, get, you get you get some strange looks. Um <laughs> But I'm also trying to envision how bad that's going to suck. Like you Sucks. think like when you bear crawl, like you do it for like, you know, 10 to 12 seconds, right? And you're like, oh, that's that's probably got to be like, what, 30, 40 yards. No, it's like 10, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm just sitting here going to my head. I'm just like trying to compute the whole thing going, yeah, 30, 35 minutes. That sounds like it sucks. A lot of it sounds like it sucks a lot. So uh, anyway, that, uh, my mind just went there. So um, <laughs> after you finish this this time with the general and you do this aide de camp thing, um, where are you with Headspace? And uh, I mean, it's about that time where you're you're deciding that you're going to stay in or get out, right? Yeah, that's it. And you know, I I never envisioned myself as a as a career military person. Oh, really? Not even when I, yeah, not even when I was at the academy or you know any point in training, I was just. It was always, I'm going to do this for as long as I'm having a blast and I'm loving it. And then, um, and then, you know, and then I won't do it anymore, but I was never dead set on, Hey, I'm gonna do this for 20 years or 30 years. I knew at some point I wanted to have a family, um, and I wanted to be around for them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so that was always in the back of my mind that there was a little bit of pull there. You know, I had so many friends that, and you look across the community and, and I'm sure, and, and, you know, in the, in the people that you serve with as well, but they're everyone's, everyone's divorced, right? It's like, you just see it's just the name of the game. And it's very hard to like, to have a family be present for me. I didn't even have any like long-term girlfriends. My, my girlfriend was, you know, the teams and it was like work hard, play hard and then, and focus on that. But um, so that was in, it was in the back of my mind, but you know, coming off of that aid job, I knew that uh, I was going right back into selection again. So I was going back into the same selection and assessment um, program that I'd been pulled out of the, the last time. So finished the A job, show up and two weeks later, I was going back through this selection. And um, now this time it was two weeks in at the end of the second week, I got, I got dropped. I just couldn't keep up. The, the first part of selection is the C- CQC and just wasn't keeping up in the house. Uh, 
for whatever reason, and just couldn't get it done. And, um, and that I would say, uh, that was crushing. So, you know, I, I here again, I felt like I'd been running on this hamster wheel as hard and as fast as I could to get to where I want to go. And I, I seemingly not making any progress and ultimately getting, you know, what I wanted. Um, so I came, pulled out a selection, um, or dropped from selection this time. And, uh, the leadership at the command, uh, I don't think they had done this to, by this point or had ever done this before, but they said, Hey, you know, look, we, we recognize that maybe um, we didn't set you up for success, whether, you know, going around with the, the general for a year and, and not really spending much time on the gun or, you know, in kill houses or doing training, um, you know, whatever the reason they just said, Hey, we want to give you uh, another shot. So what we'd like for you to do is hang around for a year uh, and then you'll go back into selection and training the, the following year. Um, and, now this time you can, you can get set up. You'll, you'll have some, some more time to, you know, bed with the teams and, and go out and spend some more time shooting. Um, so I, I told them that, uh, I would, that I would, I would stay at the command and then I would, um, I would make a decision a little bit later on. I just, it took, I just wasn't in that headspace where I'd say, all right, I'm, I'm ready to commit to this yet. So stayed there and ended up deploying a couple of times to, to the Arabian Peninsula, doing some work over there. Good deployments again, another good vantage point. Not not the combat deployments I was looking for, but um, we were doing some important work and uh, and some some interesting and, and different work. And so I really enjoyed that experience and the, and the people that I worked alongside. Um, and then it came time to to start selection again. And at that point, I made the decision that I was ready to transition out. Uh, didn't didn't start. Um, decided that you know. Again, I knew I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have kids, and and I just thought, you know, this is the right time to transition. Um, and so, that was anybody that was trying to talk you into staying? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's it's weird even even thinking about it now. It's like, did you make did I make the right decision? Was it you know what was what was really going on there, and why did I make the decision I made? Like, why not just go? back through selection again and give it one more crack. But I, at this point I was starting to look out, you know, four or five, eight years, where do I wanted to be? Uh, and, and feeling this pressure that um, I was running out of time. If I was ever going to meet someone, start a family, get this next phase of life set up. If I knew I didn't want to stay in for, you know, for 20 plus years, one of the the benefits of being with that general was that I was able to see what everyone was doing at all levels of the military uh, and, and, you know, going to a number of retirements and seeing all that. And I just, I don't know that it, it lost the work, lost its allure a little bit, but I just started to get excited about some, some other things. Um, so made the decision to transition. I think ultimately what it came down to was, you know, I, I thought about, Hey, what is it that I like about this job? You know, I love diving and shooting and jumping and demolitions. I love the the guys I work alongside and, you know, all this stuff, but what are the things that I love most? And it wasn't really any of the the adrenaline, you know, attributes of the job or the things that people deem as sexy. It was really, I love working with a small group of committed individuals on big missions and having big effects. And like, that's what I love most. And I started to realize that I didn't necessarily have to be in the teams to do that, that there were other, that I could do that outside of the military. And so that became my new front side focus is like, all right, I need to change out my tool set. I need to figure out what I want to do next. And then, but ultimately I'm still going to come back to work with a small group of individuals committed uh, on a big mission that, you know, that I care about. So. And somehow you end up in grad school. Was this uh, a, a sort of happenstance thing or what was the plan? And 
Uh, did you know what you wanted to do as soon as you said, hey, I'm done being a SEAL? Yeah. So, you know, that last year in the teams, I, I, I applied to a couple of schools. I said, all right, I want to, I want to at least open some doors and have some options. So I'm not just, um, I'm not just choosing one option because that's all I had. So I, I was going through on these deployments. I was studying for the GMATs. I was going through applications and uh, doing all of that. And right before the month before I made the call to get out, I got word back from the, from the two schools that I applied to that I didn't get accepted. Uh, no interviews, no nothing. Um, and I was like, well, what the? like that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so I was, you know, again, it was like, that was a little bit, that was a hard pill to swallow, but it made me even realize, even though I made the decision or the fact that I made the decision to transition out, even not having another option at that point, uh, just made me realize that, you know, I was ultimately making the right call. So when I got out, uh, the focus was again, Hey, let's find a way to get into, get into a, a top business school. And so I started working on that. The, the crazy thing is, you know, one of my last deployments, uh, over to the Arabian Peninsula, I was with that AOIC that I was first paired up with um, at SEAL Team 7. And he and I became best friends in the teams, uh, followed each other along at various points uh, in our time that uh, time in service. Uh, and we were together again on that final deployment. I was actually living with he and his wife uh, my last couple months uh, in Virginia. So I'd sold my place um, and I dropped him off for his, for his deployment, you know, a couple weeks before I got out, took him to the you know, took him to the, um, took him the command to, to fly out a month after getting out. Uh, I got a, I uh, got a call at, at midnight one night, my buddy, um, uh, Grady called and said, Hey, um, do you have, do you have the keys to Jonas's place? And I didn't think anything of it. I was like, uh, I said, no, it's, you know, it's stashed here. I figured, you know, he wanted to use it for a, for whatever, like late night rendezvous or whatever. Um, and the next morning, I get a text from someone and it's a link to an article about helicopter had been shot down in Afghanistan. And right away I knew where it was, who the helicopter was. And I knew that that was, that was Jonas's, um, that, that was Jonas's troop. And so um, that whole day found out that we had lost extortion 17, obviously lost an entire uh, troop. Um, I think single largest loss of us service members lives in Afghanistan, maybe even to date, I think we lost 30 service members uh, at one point. And I immediately flew back out to Virginia Beach and went back to Jonas's place. The beers that I had bought for him um, to drink, you know, on getting back from his appointment were still in the fridge. I uh, was there with his wife and um, went to a whole bunch of funerals over the course of the next, you know, month. Was working with the command to help some of the families and get, you know, fill some of their immediate needs. And, you know, it was a really strange headspace to be in to, to, to really when I left the military, I wanted to be as far as humanly possible away from the military as I could be. I didn't want to, I was, I was still dealing with a lot of this, the emotions around not achieving what I wanted to achieve while I was in. Um, and I wanted to be as far away as possible. And so a month out, you know, all these guys die. My best friend gets killed back in the command, uh, back going to all these funerals, back with the families. And it puts you in this weird headspace to like thinking, well, did I make the right decision? Did did I leave for selfish reasons? Do I need to come back in? Do I need to avenge someone's death? Like what's the, what's the right thing to do here? So strange, strange way to, to transition out. I mean, was there a moment there where after Josh had passed where you were like, no, now I need to stay. I need to like continue on. Was there any sort of that emotional pull? Yeah. So, yeah. So Jonas, Jonas um, sorry. No, no, no. All good. So, you know, Jonas and I talked about his, I, you know, talked about this before 
I took him, you know, that last night uh, before I took him, uh, before I dropped him off for that deployment. Um, it was, it was kind of wild when we were in on that final deployment together one night, uh, he kind of broke down and he said, man, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm so upset. I'm like, what's going on? He said, you know, all I want to do is stay at home and have kids, uh, and just be with my wife. And, um, I just don't want to deploy again. And I said, well, you're going to get to do that. You go on this deployment, you come back and, and, and you'll be fine. He said, no, he's like, I keep having this, I keep having this dream that my helicopter is going to get shot down on this next deployment. And, uh, so that's, you know, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. And, but he was, he was convinced. He's like, no, I keep having this dream. He's like, I'm pretty certain that, that this is going to happen. And so that night before, uh, before I dropped him off on that final deployment, uh, I asked him, I said, you know, what do you want, what do you want me to do if, if, um, you know, if, if you die in this deployment, like, do you want me to come in? Do you want me to you go back into the teams? Like, what is it that, what does he want? I said, no, just, you know, look after my family, make sure my family's, you know, cared for my wife and, um, and that's it. And so, um, we exchanged, I think, uh, maybe one or two emails that first month of his deployment. And then, um, and then he was dead. Wow. That is, uh, crazy that he was having those dreams. Like that's. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's wild. It hits home. Right? I, don't know, I don't know what to make of it. No, it's uh wow. So, so sorry. Um, all right. Uh, so I try to transition here, but, uh, you're out, you're, you're headed to grad school. Okay. Um, do you know? Yeah, actually, but, but before 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 grad school, I went to ended up. I just needed some time to decompress. So I ended up going out to Indonesia. Uh, oh, really? A surf trip? Yeah, with a, with a guy that was still in. We went out for two weeks. Uh, spent two weeks in Indo surfing, and then while we were there, um, one of the guests we were on this like the Mentawa Island, Mentawis and Mentawa Islands. We're on this this one island, super remote in West Sum, West Sumatra. No, West. Yeah, I think West Sumatra, um, and one of the guests that, that was, that was also there, I think they had like 10 guests at a time, cut his foot up on a reef and always travel with sutures. And, you know, we always get, we get the basic like combat casualty care training. And so I stitched his foot up and then the, and then the owner of the camp was like, Hey, do you want to, would you mind staying to the end of the, uh, to the end of the season? We could use someone that can help with some basic medical stuff and help, you know, guide surfers and whatnot. And I was like, I don't have anything going on. Sure. That sounds great. And I was actually supposed to, I'd gotten picked up for this Goldman Sachs internship, pre-MBA internship thing. And, um, Goldman Sachs, you know, they notified me while I was out there that you got picked up for this and they reached out and they're like, all right, we need you, you know, in New York in like two weeks, three weeks. And I was like looking at, well, I can go to New York and Goldman Sachs for in three weeks, or I can stay here for the next, you know, three, three months surfing. And I was like, well, Goldman, this is not, this is not going to work out. I need to stay here in Indo. So I ended up doing that time in Indonesia. It was great, super cathartic, uh, really good for me. Um, got it, you know, I felt like I got in a really great headspace and then uh, came back and then jumped right back into, jumped into business school. So. Wow. Uh, it takes guts. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if it, I don't know if it was the right, I don't regret the decision. I, I'm sure I missed out on the, on the Goldman side of things, but, um, you know, I needed, uh, I, I needed, I needed a time away. It was good for me. Gotcha. Do you know what you want to do when you go to business school? Like, do you have this plan laid out or are you just kind of going for the sake of going? No, I, I was just, I thought, Hey, this is going to be a good experience. Again, you know, like I'll learn a new skill set. Um, I will, um, you know, I, I, I felt like ultimately I wanted to start my own thing. I just didn't know what that was. Uh, so I had the, I had this idea that I want to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know what I was going to do or, or what that was going to be. And so um, I'm just kind of went in and 
for me, you know, people going to business school for a lot of different reasons. Some people are going to party for two years. Some people are going to, you know, just get some downtime or transition or whatever. For me, I was like, I'm going to try to focus as much on the academics as possible and learn as much as I can. And again, like nothing really comes easy to me. So I had to work really hard in the classroom to, to stay up. But um, yeah, that was, that was my focus. And over the, over the two years that I was there, you know, got exposed to a lot of different things. I would say one thing that was an incredibly valuable asset for me. And I didn't, I didn't realize this at the time or going in was how much I needed other veterans around. So Warden, very pro-veteran. Uh, I had a few other SEALs in my in my uh, class, number of special operations personnel, people from across the military, from the Australian SAS, and being able to sit in a classroom um, and, you know, have a conversation or teachers teaching something and being able to look and make eye contact with another person that gets it and just say like, all right, like it was, it was massive. It was everything for me. So um had a great experience, you know, in, in business school, interned at Google. I was there um, over that summer, not because I, I necessarily wanted to go to Google, but absent knowing what I wanted to do, it, it was the only interview that I did and, uh, and was, you know, got a slot to, to do the internship there. So I did that. And um, yeah, that was my, that was my experience. Um, how does the Pat Tillman scholar thing come about? I applied for that. Uh, someone reached out to me, um, a fellow uh, SEAL named Sai, who, who was a, also a Tillman scholar, reached out and said, hey, you might want to check this out. This is super interesting. And so I put in an application as I was going through the business school application process, um, had a few calls with them, and then and then found out that I got picked up for that. And so, yeah, even before going to business school, I actually had the, the every, um, every Tillman scholar class they bring together in person and Oh, wow. had a chance to connect with this community and for a few days. And, and it was awesome. It was, uh, it was so great and continue to, to stay involved in, in that community. But um, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, it's listen, it's not easy to be a Tillman scholar. It's a, there's a lot of very specific circumstances that they're looking for. Um, and it has nothing to do with you being a SEAL. It's veterans across the board. Um, but it's just a very unique um, individual that they're trying to find um, to, to, you know, keep Pat's memory alive and, and, and be in the embodiment of Pat. Like that's the big thing about it too. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, when, when you find that out that you, you're, you're a Tillman scholar, like, is there an emotional component in that to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Pat was someone that, that I always looked up to. I mean, you look at someone that seemingly from the outside has everything and has a, mm -hmm. has a very, I won't say easy path, but at least a very certain path in front of them. That's going to uh, afford them, you know, tremendous wealth and, and, and opportunity, uh, to see them give that all up, uh, to enlist in the army is, I don't know. There's something about that is that is so powerful and to, to know just how much service meant to Pat and that, um, he wasn't going to play by anyone else's rules that Pat was going to do what he thought was right, that he was internally motivated to, to do the right thing was, was awesome. And it just, mm -hmm. for me, uh, at the academy and, and watching what Pat did, uh, watching him go into service, uh, it was always something that was so inspirational to me, uh, and and served as a, a great example. I think he, I think he sets a, an amazing example for a lot of people. So to find myself in a position where I'm in some way affiliated with with Pat and his legacy and uh, helping to to keep that legacy alive was a tremendous honor. 
Yeah, and for those who don't know, this is one of the things I always found the most amazing is that, you know, Pat's first deployment wasn't to Afghanistan where he was killed. His first deployment was actually to Iraq. Uh, and after that deployment, he had a clause in his contract that he could be let out of the military after one deployment. Um, and uh, they approached him, and he actually had offers from NFL teams to go back to the NFL. And, um, you know, the Army even said, listen, if you want to go, man, go. And Pat said, no, I signed up for three years. I'm going to do three years, and that's going to be the end of it. And so and ultimately ended up losing his life on his next deployment to Afghanistan. But he had every right to walk away after one deployment and said, nope, I'm doing three years, and that's what I signed up to do. And hmm. that's kind of, you know, the embodiment of Pat. He was going to do it his way, but he also – you know, had a certain amount of respect for any commitment that he made, right? Like, you know, to follow it through all the way through to the end and see it through all the way to the end. And there was a greater purpose in all those commitments. It wasn't just about the commitment itself. It all fed into a bigger, grander picture for him personally. But just, you know, that's also what the Tillman Scholarship is about, that what you're doing now is feeding into a bigger, grander purpose because of the commitment they've made to you and you've made to them. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So... All right, uh, you get out of uh, business school, and now you're officially smart because Wharton told you so. Um, Stamp. And you, you end up getting a job at Google, right? Yeah, I ended up getting a job at Google. Well, I, I I received an offer to go back to Google after doing my internship, and um, I think you know the transition is, is hard for anyone. I don't care if you're in for two years or ten years or twenty years. Leaving the military is is a hard. It's not easy, um, and I think for me, I essentially grown up in the military. So from the time I was 18 to time I was, you know, almost 30, the military is what I knew, whether it was at the academy or in the teams or in training, like that was my family, my community, my, it was everything that I had known. And, and when I left that, I put a lot of pressure on myself to make sure that what I did next was I wanted to have as much of a um, visceral connection to, and that it had to matter. It had to have some purpose, it had to have meaning. And coming off of that internship and I got this offer to go back to Google, I couldn't, I couldn't make it make sense to, to see how I was, you know, what I was doing at Google and, you know, customer service and operations, like how that mattered and why I just didn't care about it. I didn't feel connected to it. And I was like, yeah, it's a great, it's a great company and you can, you can live well there and be comfortable and, and all of those things that, that people want. But for me um, at the, at that moment in time, I just said, you know, I need something more like it's, there's gotta be something else going on. And so I turned down the offer to go back to Google without really having another opportunity uh, at the time. And over, uh, over Christmas break, I you know, was born and raised in Texas. I was back in Texas and I was talking to a few people and um uh, one one friend in particular who had um, started an energy company and done really well. And he said, you know, we're not hiring, but if you want to come work uh, with my executive team, you know, be a really good experience. You'll get to see things from a different vantage point and um, you know, might be, might be worth your time. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I took, I took it because it seemed to be this amazing opportunity that, you know, uh, people would, would kill for. And I think part of being a, a SEAL or, you know, in the military or special operations is that you're, you're always seeking to optimize. You want to do the hardest, the best, whatever the, the thing is that is, you know, whatever is, you know, non-traditional or just the best, that's what you want to be doing. And so I took the job and um, really in the blind, not knowing what I was going to be doing. And remember I showed up on day one and I met with, uh, I, I was 
and I was paired up with his group CFO and I met with the CFO and this is like a hundred billion dollar company. They had a, a few portfolio companies, so big company, but small executive team. And so I met with the CFO and his, his CFO said, okay, well, um, send you downstairs and I'm going to send you a model and I'm going to send you some contracts and just, you know, immerse in that. So I said, all right. So I went downstairs and sitting in this chair, that's, you know, a little bit uncomfortable and I've got this buttoned up shirt and sitting in front of this, um, windows computer. And he sends me this model that's got like 27 sheets and all these different things. I have no idea what's going on. And he, I, someone drops off like 5,000 pages of contracts uh, all around this, this LNG export terminal down on the Gulf coast. And I start flipping through these things and I want to start like breaking out in hives. Like I hate Excel. Uh, I don't like sitting in it. I don't like, you know, legal contracts. And I'm like reading through these things, trying to make sense of all this. And nothing about it felt right. Again, coming back to this sense of like, I need to do something that I feel connected to that I feel inspired by that is meaningful and, you know, measurable to me. And I just knew, man, this, this isn't it. Like I've made a grave error. And my, my takeaway from that was like, just because you're presented with an amazing opportunity doesn't mean it's the right opportunity for you. And so you've got to do some diligence there. And and I hadn't done that diligence. So next day I went in, I sat down with the CFO. I said, look, I think I've made a, a tremendous error. And before we get any further, um, I don't want to do you all a disservice. I certainly don't want to take a salary if I don't think I'm going to do a good job here, if I'm going to add value and um, I think I've made a mistake. He convinced me to, uh, he convinced me to stay and said, you know, this is, this is just part of the, the onboarding phase. Like, trust me, this is going to get better. And um, the more I, and so I, I agreed, I said, all right, well, I'll, I'll stay a little bit. And I agreed to my, I, I made this commitment to myself that I'd stay in this position for a year I felt like I owed it to the, the gentleman that offered me the job. And about six months in, uh, Google reached back out there, putting together a different team and said, hey, if you want to come back, we've, we've got something new and different and we think you'd be interested in it. And um, I decided to, to make the make the jump after the year with, a, with the energy company. So, And the, uh, the jump then leads to branching out on your own, right? That's it. Yeah. So I spent almost three years with Google and mm-hmm. um, obviously got a lot of good experience there and got to see a lot of different things. Um, but I still had this pull. I know I wanted to work on something that I cared about that was, um, that was more entrepreneurial. And, um, that last, those last six months at Google, I started just doing a lot of research outside of my work time and started working on some different ideas and ultimately settled on this, um, settled on on an idea with a, with a friend that we wanted to work on. And I left Google to work on it full time. So it was the startup that was almost four and a half years ago and still working on it today. And the company is called made for, and you're wearing the logo uh, (laughs) on the hat. If you're watching this, uh, this pod on YouTube or on the Killcliffe app. Um, Yeah. By the way, that looks like a golf like logo. Like I feel like you should be golfing. It's like the, like the perfect logo for for a golfer to wear on their chest or on their hat. But anyway, um, 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 if there are any golfers listening, yeah. <laughs> get on our website, buy some hats, and wear them. <laughs> uh, fantastic for sponsorships all around. Uh, no, um, so made for um, yeah. you as you, you as you, your friend uh, Blake uh, Mikoski, right? Is that how you say it? Yeah, Blake okay. Mikoski. Blake yeah. Mikoski, you guys start this thing up. Like, so how do you come up with the idea? What's the premise, and and what do you want to accomplish with it? Yeah. So, you know, it was interesting when I was, when I was going through business school, um, one of the classes that I took wasn't actually a part of the business school program. I, I audited an under, undergraduate class. So I was already the old dude going to business school. I was the really old dude sitting in like this class of freshmen and sophomores sitting in the back of the class, but it was taught by this woman, Angela Duckworth. And the, and the class was an introduction to the field of positive psychology. Um, so I'm, I'm someone that like, 
I don't like soft things. I don't like guru things. I'm not into fads and I just like, all right, what's, what's going on here and what's effective and what works. And, and that gets me excited. But that whole field I, I found particularly interesting. Basically what they said is in anything that you do from a, from a health standpoint, whether it's behavioral, physical, mental health, there are really two sides to the equation. One side is uh, focusing on harm reduction and minimizing downside risks, stopping bad behaviors or, you know, um, what are the things that you have to stop doing? But the other side of the equation is what are the things you can be in pursuit of uh, actions that you can take or habits you can cultivate or mindsets that you can um, foster that bring out the best in you that work in line with the way that your brain and body are designed. And a lot of what they talked about in that class and what had been proven out through evidence-based research and the studies that were being done mapped to my experience in the teams and what I saw people lean into that were really resilient and, and did a great job in the community. And um, that for me was, again, it planted this little seed like, well, there's something interesting there. I might like, like to work on something like that someday. Uh, I'd always been interested in this idea of human potential and how we can get the most uh, with what we've been given. Um, and so again, I just kept researching and reading and, and chipping away at this. And then uh, Blake and I came together and decided, Hey, you know, it'd be cool to work on something where we help people, um, be better. Like just, can we give people the information and the tools and the, maybe the action steps to figure out how to get the most and unlock the potential that they have uh, within, within inside themselves. So that was really the mission kind of jumped in all in with that mission, but didn't know necessarily how we're going to build this offering or what it was going to be. And um, very early on, I brought on a gentleman named uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's a neuroscientist out of Stanford. who's since become very popular over the last year with that Huberman Lab podcast, but brought Andrew in and said, hey, let's work together and let's figure this out. You know, he studies neuroplasticity and how you can uh, create changes in the brain that last over the entire course of your life. And you think about, hey, I can change the brain, then that means I can change my mindset, I can change my behaviors, I can change whatever it is that I'm trying to change. And so brought Andrew in, brought a whole bunch of really smart people, John Rady and Ruth Banka and Samar Hattar from Harvard and Stanford and National Institute of Mental Health to help us design this program of uh, that would become made for. Um, and so that's uh, that's that's how we did. So basically, I mean, again, you talk about the neuroscience behind it, but I try to boil it down like bottom line up front. It's just about getting your brain to work in ways that you haven't been able to do before to create better outcomes for yourself. Is that fair? Yeah, that's it. Well, I, I think maybe it's maybe it's being here in Los Angeles or in Southern California. But if you look in like health and wellness space, there's mm -hmm. there's so much BS out there. There's so much like yeah. marketing and hype and things that get pushed to people um, that are just frankly a waste of money. And so I, I wanted to come into this, you know, work on something that would really give people greater agency, a greater level of control and help get them into action in ways that made a difference. And so, um, but yeah, that's what it is. And so we looked at we looked at all of the things that were out there across the human performance um, area and started just pressure testing them with you know, research and what does the science say and ultimately narrowed it down to 10 things. And every these things are very simple. So things like hydration and movement and gratitude and rest and exposure to nature and social connection and nutrition, uh, breath, all things that we intuitively know are good for us, but maybe we've skipped over them in pursuit of other things that maybe are sexy or high speed or promise a quick fix. Um, and so we took all of these things and basically designed a program around them. So uh, we deliver the science, uh, we make it really interesting with, you know, these, these stories that we tell, uh, and then we map it to what's the smallest thing that I can get you to focus your attention and effort on one thing at a time. 
um, that if you do it, engage it in a certain way, it's actually going to make you reflexively show up better in your life. So you can be working on hydration, but in working on hydration, you actually find that, well, I'm a better parent or I'm a better, you know, teammate, or I'm, I'm just more present and attuned to everything that I'm doing. Um, so that's a little bit of, you know, what's going on with the program. The hydration thing is interesting because I feel like it would make me a worse parent because I'd be in the can every 25 minutes. I try to do that <laughs> gallon of water thing in a day. It's like, Hey, where's Mark? Oh, he's in the bathroom again. Um, no, but I, I mean, look, look, I'm scrolling through the website. I'm kind of hooked. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, idea of it um and it's getmadefor.com just the three words get made and for getmadefor.com uh and a, a lot of it i don't want to you know I, I i guess you know simplify your your company but a lot of it seems like stuff that people genuinely know or but it's just there's some fine tuning to it that that makes it a little bit of a a, a better result so to speak that's it. Yeah. I think these are, these are things that you intuitively know they're good for you. Maybe your grandparents told you to, to do them, but again, for one reason or another, um, you, you don't do them or um, maybe there, there's a lot more that you could be doing there. If you, if you changed um, with a little bit more information, you can get a lot more out of these practices. And so the, you know, the goal of made for is, is not that you get through the end of this program and you've got, you know, 10 things that you have to do every day to like live your best life. Really the goal is, can you, that the goal is, can you make your best self your reflexive self? So you're not having to like work hard and think about checklists, but rather that, you know, we help you change your habits, change your mindset so that your life changes in a way that, you know, is best for you and recognizing like, there's not, it's not a one size fits all approach. There's not like one way to better living. There's everyone's got their your own unique path to, to wellness or to unlocking their potential. But we've worked with, you know, 10, over 10,000 people to date all across the country. Um, and it's super effective, like our small, simple steps. And again, these aren't like, these aren't big lifts. These are just a couple minutes every day of something that you engage. Um, but they stack up, uh, in really powerful and effective ways. And so, yeah. What's the biggest thing that you took from being a seal or whether it was from buds that has transitioned you into this organization made for that has helped you be successful? Um, I think it's having a mission focused mindset. Um, I just, you know, one understanding what the mission is and making sure that you feel connected and inspired by the mission, um, that helps you navigate the challenges and the headwinds that come up, but also identify opportunities of where, you know, you can leverage the team or you can leverage, um, whatever may come your way to help you move closer towards achieving that mission set. Oftentimes I think people talk about seals and they, they focus on the wrong things like, oh, that person can run forever. They can do a lot of pull-ups or, you know, whatever. They're great shots. But I think ultimately what SEALs do the a really good job of is they they find ways to be effective no matter the environment that they find themselves in. And so it doesn't matter if it's in the air or the water, jungle, urban, out of an embassy, you get it dropped down into a new environment and you figure out, all right, what is it that I care? What am I trying to achieve? And start pulling things and uh, messing with levers to figure out how do I have the effects that I want to have so that I can ultimately achieve what I want. Um, that I think has helped me, you know, in, in working with Made For and, and uh, ultimately, yeah, you know, getting to this, getting to this point. So again, getmadefor.com. I just, I'm, I'm not even joking around. I'm, I'm genuinely curious as to what, what all this is as I scroll through the website as we're doing this here. Um, and the 10 components that you have of it. I mean, again, it's one, I feel like, Hey, it's, it's for me, it would be like one of those slap upside the head things. Hey, stupid, you know, this stuff already, but when you concentrate it and you put it all together, it's almost like, you know, 
to use your psychology terms, like Gestalt philosophy, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. That's it. That's it. And and it's, you know, Andrew, uh, Andrew Huberman talks about, you know, there's, you can change your brain over the entire course of your life, but past the age of 25, there's really only two models of brain change. One is through a short, intense experience, positive or negative, car accident, combat, sex, getting married, birth of a child, whatever mm-hmm. that may be. Uh, the other way, though, is through small, consistent actions done with awareness of like cause and effect of what you're doing and what is the effect that it's having on you. And so that's the model that Maze for is built on. And frankly, the, the the peak experiences are great, but they're the exception. They're not, you know most of life is lived off the, off the mountaintop. And so that's where we focus our time. And um, it's been fun to do. And I, I would say, you know, for anyone that's listening, that's a military veteran, uh, whether you're a veteran or you're active duty or you're a military dependent, uh, May 4 is now free for our community. So uh, oh, really? you can find there's a, there's a link, there's a military link on the website, on the homepage. Uh, if you want to do it, you can sign up and, um, and we made it free, uh, free for all for for the military community that was something that you know the first opportunity that we had to do that uh, i wanted to it was important to me to be able to give back and serve a community that i feel obviously serves the rest of us but is but has shaped my life in such a meaningful and impactful way all right i mean you got me especially you, you can give me free anything i'll take it uh so <laughs> you, you, go. you got you got a new customer uh, what is the thing about the teams you miss the most now that you've been gone for what five years plus now people mm-hmm. hands down i think well you know, two things the people um, and the consequence of action. So this idea that everything that we're doing, there's a there's a there's a great consequence to it. So whether you're in combat or you're in training, like um, everything just has a certain gravity to it that it's hard to recreate on the outside. What uh, what is something that you wish you did more of during the SEAL team time that you didn't get a chance to do when you look back on it? Um, this is probably something that I just fall victim to in general, but just savor and enjoy the time more. Yeah. Um, I'm always so focused on like, what's the next thing? What's like, what I need to be working on next? And um, this kind of ever optimizing. And I feel it, you can, that, that's, that sometimes comes at a cost where you don't recognize and savor like, all the awesome stuff that's going on here now. Um, so I wish I, I'd done that a little bit more and um, yeah. Does, does made for scratch that itch that you didn't get a chance to scratch for en- enough in combat? You know, it, it made for made for is not combat. Uh, <laughs> no question. But what I would say is that we have a mission and the mission matters and it's been fun to see the effects that we've had on people and, you know, I do, I do calls with our, with our members a couple of times a month um, and with our, with our advisors and just seeing how we can show up for someone and get someone to do something small that, that again, changes the trajectory of their, of their life in some way is, is awesome. And it, it's important and it matters. And I think, you know, especially now over the course last couple of years where people have been maybe under uh, an increased level of stress. It's been really awesome to, to give people a little bit more conviction and certainty that, um, you know, that they've got, they've got more power than, than they thought that they had. So that's been awesome. Uh, because you mentioned him before, uh, I just thumbed through on, uh, on your website, the practical joke that Jonas had played on you uh, <laughs> in Iraq. Would you mind sharing it with the audience? Yeah. So Jonas and I, on our, our first deployment, we were, um, 
we're cellmates together. And, um, you know, we are obviously working, uh, during our, during the, the time we were doing our, our direct action stuff, we were working at night and sleeping during the day. And so, because you never want to leave your trailer during the day, the sun was so bright. We just keep water bottles next to our beds and you, you piss in your water bottle at night Oh yeah, or during the day. So you never have to leave. And every, I mean, everyone knows this. And so, um, Jonas ever the practical jokester thought it would be funny. Well, one night I wake up, I got to pee and start peeing in my, in my water bottle. I notice like, uh, I am not quite the alignments off. Something's going wrong. And I'm like <laughs> splashing everywhere. I'm like, what is fucking, what's going on? And start shaking this water bottle, trying to figure it out. And I just hear Jonas in the corner of the, the hut, just like giggling, just can't stop laughing and turn on the light. And Jonas thought it'd be funny to just uh, poke holes all throughout the bottom of my water bottle. So the more I shook it, the more I tried to line up, the more pee went everywhere. And um, Jonas thought that was funny. And I'm still plotting my revenge on him. I'll get him back one uh, that day. That is outstanding. That is a great prank. I, I had never thought of that. But yeah, uh, <laughs> for any of us, even for the for those of us who were sleeping at night, I just didn't want to walk 75 yards to the bathroom when I had to there pee. So I just peed in a water bottle and threw it out in the morning. Uh, so I, I get it, man. That's a, that is... That's an all-time good prank. I can't believe no one ever <laughs> thought of that before. That is outstanding. But uh, tip of the cap to Jonas, obviously. Um, mm. You know, with with all of that that you went through and, and you know, uh, losing Jonas and things of that nature, how much of that still stays with you every day? Well, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the silver linings of that whole story is I um, ended up meeting and um, – through, you know, during the, the services and, and post services kind of meeting Jonas's family and getting, and getting close with them. And then, uh, developed a friendship with Jonas's sister. And, uh, a couple years later we got married. And so I'm married to Jonas's sister. Now we've got three kids, twin girls, rebel and sailor, two and a half and Rowdy is nine months old. And, um, so there's not a day that goes by that. I don't, I don't think of Jonas. Um, we've got, we've got teddy bears made up for all the kids out of his old uniforms. We've got his picture on the wall and they're always looking up at uncle Jonas. And, um, so yeah, I think about him, uh, I think about him every day and I think about, you know, we've lost so many, obviously, you know, across the military, but inside our community as well, we, we continue to lose people and have lost so many people and so many of my close friends and, and former teammates that, um, it just makes every moment and every day precious. And you want to make sure that you're intentional with your time and that you're not wasting any of the opportunities that that their service has afforded us. Yeah, that's amazing. That's an incredible story about you and uh, Jonas's sister. Wow, that's uh, that's serendipity uh, one way or another, right? Um, yeah. And also as a father of twins, I'll tell you this, you already know it, but it's always zone defense. You never play man. <laughs> you never play man with twins. It's always zone. Uh, well, zone- I, well I, I tell you, I... Um, I think, I think SEAL training is far easier than being a parent. Uh, there's no question, and yeah. especially being a parent of twins. It's, there's not a day that, that has gone by over the last couple of years that I haven't looked for a bell, um, and there's, there's no bell to ring in my house. <laughs> at least in SEAL training, you, know, you, know, you don't ring the bell, but at least you know it's there. Like If yeah. I want off this, off this ride, I can, and uh, I have yet to find that. In yeah, see, the, the so. problem with parenthood is like even after a rough day in SEAL training, they give you some downtime. You go out, you tie one on, right? You, you just <laughs> you feel go. like you, you let loose. <laughs> The problem is the, the, there's only one thing worse than taking care of children hungover, and that's flying hungover. Um, and so there's no more miserable experience. So even when you get a little time to, to go out and do what you want to do, yeah, it, it ends up coming back to, to bite you in the ass the next day. So, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've learned that too with, uh, with, with twins that uh, everyone's like, oh, that's got to be tough. I always tell them, look, I, 
I have twins. I don't have a reference point for one. I assume one's easier, but since two are always around, I'll never really know. So yeah. uh, anyway. So it's always chaos. Right, exactly. That's <laughs> it's part of it, controlled chaos. Well, listen, uh, I, I thank you so much. An amazing story. I certainly appreciate you know you sharing it all with us um, and, and your journey. And uh, again, continue to uh, support GetMadeFor.com. MadeFor is the company, but GetMadeForFOR.com. Uh, to get more on Pat's company. Uh, again, free to vil- military folks and military veterans. So I'm signing up uh, and I'll, I'll reach out to you afterwards to uh, to get to get started. But again, congratulations to Pat Tillman Scholar, Wharton School of Business, started your own company and just everything has been a an incredible journey from you from the Naval Academy on. So I appreciate you you, you sharing it with us. Thanks, Mark, for the, the invite. Enjoy the conversation and thanks for uh, the work you do to to spread these stories and uh, and for your continued service. Uh, thank you. Thank you very, very much. It's been great talking to you. And I certainly appreciate, uh, all that you've done and all that you're continuing to do. And we ended always with Patrick Gossett. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Cheers. You've been listening to kill cliffs hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazard And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.